Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I hope and pray you're doing well, and that is unexpected and unusual as this year, 2020, has been for all of us, that you are able now to shift gears a little bit and enjoy all that summer has to offer, which is a much smaller menu, I'm sure, than most of us anticipated. Uh, And as we move deeper into summer, I hope that's more and more the case. I'm thrilled to introduce you to today's guest. My friend Amanda Henderson is with us today. Amanda is a pastor and the executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, and their work is to bring people together from multiple religious traditions for the work of educating and advocating for human rights and equality. And it's actually uh, through working with the Interfaith Alliance that I've come to know and respect Amanda She is a sought-after voice, uh, writing and speaking on interfaith understanding, advocacy, and civic engagement. She and her husband have three children and live in the Denver area. And she's here with us today to talk about her new book titled Holy Chaos, Creating Connections in Divisive Times. Amanda, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thanks. I'm so grateful to be here with you. Yeah, well, first off, how are you and your family doing in this... uh, incredible, I call it incredible cultural moment we're living through of both the pandemic and the protests and everything that seems to be happening. It is a chaotic one, isn't it? (laughs) Um, We are, are doing as well as you can, you know, I mean, I think that uh, this is one of those moments that we will all look back on and, and we keep trying to remind ourselves that. And I've been doing a lot of journaling, um, knowing that, Sometimes when you're in the middle of those pivotal moments, uh, you can't remember them afterwards because our, I think our brains are trying to process so much new information. Uh, so we're hanging in there. We're, we're doing a lot of camping. We're doing a lot of getting outside. Uh, we're spending a lot more time together, uh, for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're wishing there was a little more structure for our teenagers and... Uh, we're spending a lot of time with our neighbors, which I love. Um, also having a lot of really important conversations around racism and, and how to dismantle racist structures and systems. And that is really exciting to be able to have those conversations. Uh, and then navigating a pandemic and not really, you know, the uncertainty of the future, trying to hold space in the middle of that. Yeah. So second... Uh, is there anything you would like our listeners to know about you? Hmm. Uh, I think that I am most interested in helping push people to step into the complicated, difficult spaces. And for too long, especially as white folks, especially as white Christian folks, even white Christian progressive folks, we have stayed in our uh, comfort bubbles and I'm really good at building comfort bubbles. Like you can find them around my house. Um, I like to be comfortable. And the thing about me is that I also want to push those boundaries constantly and, and push myself and push others to step into the complicated, messy, chaotic spaces, because I think that that's where real transformation will happen. Hmm. And that's ultimately what your book points toward is a lot of that mess and tension and um, even the title feels really on point. There's two words in it, chaos and connection, which feel like a good description um, in, our, in, in any attempt to have connection in the midst of our division. And so I'm wondering, what is it that led you to write the book in the first place? 
So I think, um, one, these ideas had always been stirring for me, the, the existential questions of what's it about and where we're going, where are we going? And as I had been doing my work with the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado over these past six years, I've been in a lot of those messy spaces. And my experience is that it's when I am pushed out of my comfort zone, feeling a little nervous and even afraid sometimes or uncomfortable or meeting someone and getting to know someone who's radically different than me, that I have felt and experienced this deep sense of connection that I would call the holy. And I had a moment, uh, that I talk about in the book when I was in San Jose and I was watching the seals and they were, it was pupping season and they were pushing the babies, the mama, mama seals were pushing the babies as he was teaching them to swim. They were teaching each other to swim. So all of a sudden this, there were two babies that came up next to one mama seal. And all of a sudden the mama reared up and snapped at one of the babies. And I was shocked by it. I hadn't seen that. And I realized that that was the wrong baby. The baby had, you know, how when parents, children go up to the wrong legs of uh, a mother thinking it's their own. Uh, it was that kind of scenario where the, the seal went to the wrong mom and the, the mom seal snapped. And I had this moment of grace like, oh, good. <laughs> Even <laughs> seals snap at the, the young children. Um, of, as a mother and as an adoptive mother and as someone who is trying to love outside of myself, I realized that this loving outside of ourself is difficult. And it goes against, I, I hesitate to use the word nature and I you know, would complexify the word, but it goes against this nature of protecting our own and protecting ourself to love outside of ourself. And, mm -hmm. and I started really sitting with that of, you know, this is the most basic call in my Christian tradition. And I think in so many different religions to love God and to love each other, to love that, which is not me. And how do we do that? And I think it's really freaking hard. And that's why it's a core teaching in so many different religions, because we can't figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so I just started really thinking about that. It what does it require? And, and that's what the book is about, is how do we step into those complicated, difficult spaces and learn how to love one another and how to connect? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and you, you tell that story about the, the seals at the, um, at the beginning of the book, and it's there, too, that you have a parallel story um, where you talk about your heart being broken open, and you write this. You say, when my heart was broken open, I became raw, vulnerable, free, and newly able to see the broader brokenness in the world. And the circumstances surrounding uh, what I just read, they led you, in a sense, into the mess, which describe you describe as both the mess in your own self and the mess in the world. And I found this to be a, um, a powerful insight about connecting, a way of us connecting ourselves to the world. And I'm wondering, 
Uh, can you share more about that connection of being broken open and seeing the brokenness of the world and how it continues to lead you to a greater love for the world? Yeah. I, Parker Palmer, and, and I tell the story in the book too, uh, talks about the broken open heart and that when our heart breaks open, it can break into shards or shrapnel and, and harm one another. And we hear this with hurt people, hurt people, right? Um, or a heart can break open and become soft and vulnerable. And when we allow our heart to be broken open in the way that it becomes soft and vulnerable, we gain new insight and new eyes. And we are able to see and stand with and care for the broken of the world, which is all of us if we take a minute to think about it, um, those who are hurting, those who are most vulnerable. And, and for me, it made me more curious about that broken openness and that vulnerability and my own shortcomings and failures, being able to sit with that and, and feel the discomfort and the pain of it rather than trying to fix it or get out of it as fast as possible and make myself comfortable or numb myself to that pain and discomfort, when we lean into it, we are more able to form deep connection and to see the divine in the other uh, mm. and to see the brokenness in the other and love them anyway. And has this perspective helped you? I, I think... Um when I hear you talk about this, I think about all of us, really, myself included, where there's a propensity to, in important conversations, in debate, in, you know, around social issues, to allow ourselves to think that we've got it right, we've got this thing nailed down, and if people would just listen to us or think our way or do it our way, it'd be better, and there's nothing wrong with our side, you need to change. But what I'm hearing you say is when we realize that all of us are in need of growth and healing and change, we're able to begin seeing that uh, even in the people with whom we disagree the most. Yes. And I, I think that we have this um, fear of admitting that <laughs> or <laughs> fear of um, there are things that I believe that if we say that, then we lose all of our foundation. That if I, if I am open to the fact that I could be wrong, then maybe I'm wrong about everything. And, and so being able to hold that space that says, you know, there's a lot that I don't know. And there are some things that I believe really deeply are core to who I am and to our humanity and to what we're called to be. And those I might hold a little tighter. Um, but even those, you know, I mean, we're, we're not, you know, making our hand bleed with our fingernails, holding our hands so tight. We're, 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 but we hold more tightly. Um, and I think so often we have thought that it's all or nothing. Like it's this regimented, I know everything. These are all the facts or this annihilistic, nothing is true. 
I believe nothing. Um, there is a dance between those spaces saying there are things that I feel deeply are true. And there's a whole lot I don't know about the world. There's a whole lot I don't know about other people, about the past, about the future. Um, and so how can I dance in that space? Yeah. Yeah. You And you mentioned fear in that, which I think plays a huge uh, a huge role in so many of the conversations we're having now, and particularly the division. And you title the chapter where you speak about fear, I Can't Breathe, Seeing Fear. And uh, in in the chapter, you talk about participating in a protest after the death of Eric Garner uh, at the Capitol building here in Denver, and that you went with this, a group that really wasn't a, that large of a group. I think it was 40 or 50 people went to protest uh, peacefully, and the Capitol went on lockdown. At 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> What's that? At 7.30 in the morning. 7.30 in the morning, you locked down the state Capitol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you talked about the fear that was there, and you wrote this. You said, for months after the protest, I sat with this moment of what are we all so afraid to what has fear driven us? How is fear different for those holding power compared with those who don't? And I had a ton of questions around this chapter, um, particularly because once again, now years later, we heard the words, I can't breathe from another unarmed black man, George Floyd, who uh, was being mur- or was murdered by police and his death has sparked protests around the globe. But what I want to ask about the fear and the fear of many and particularly white people with regard to conversation about race, because when you talked about how is fear different for those holding power compared with those who don't, you're tapping into something. So can you share your insights uh, about fear and specifically in this moment about the white community and fear in the context of the conversation about race? Yeah. Um, I think that when, when people who are black express fear, that there is a physical existential fear quite often, a material fear for life. You know, they're being killed. Um, This is a real fear. I mean, all fear is real. This is a deep fear. Um, I think I am really curious about what white people are so afraid of. And, And what I wonder, um, I think there's a few different layers and it's different for different people. I wonder if one of the things we're so afraid of is being seen as a bad person. Hmm. And we are afraid of, wait a minute, I am a good person. And you hear this a lot. I'm not racist. I haven't benefited from the system. Um, I never did anything that it's this, this fear of being seen as a bad person, that that's one element of it. Um, I think a subconscious fear, maybe not conscious for everyone, is that fear of losing power and losing material wealth and realities um, and comfort that it is like the things that are being called for that need to happen for real uh, healing involve a change in material realities, which means like a change in resources. When we talk about defunding the police, when we talk about reparations, those are financial questions that have financial consequences. And if we're talking about moving resources to 
police uh, to community services rather than hiring more people as police, that is an actual change in where we're moving money. When we talk about reparations or um, even, uh, you know, college admissions and, well, you're getting in and now I'm not, uh, that there's this loss that people are afraid of. But I, I feel like what I hear so much, though, is that when we see racism, all of a sudden we realize that we aren't the good person, in quotes, that we thought we were. Hmm. And hmm. there's this ethical like sense of identity that is being challenged. Yeah, it's a, it's a really painful liberation. I think it's Richard Rohr, it is Richard Rohr, who said something like, there are two kinds of prophets. One is Moses, who goes and tells the enslaved that they can be free. The other man or prophet is Jesus, who tells those who believe they are free that they are, in fact, enslaved. And Jesus Ooh. has the harder path. And I Absolutely. think that's, that's so much of I, I, what you're talking about, this fear of, well, what if I'm not who I thought I was? Mm -hmm. And it's easier to deflect. It's easier to push away. It's easier to say no, to put their hands over their ears or put, I should say, our hands over our ears and our hands over our eyes to not want to see it. But I think that the, one of the things I appreciated about your approach in the book is you involve your own life in this conversation. So you're not standing apart, pointing at everybody, saying you're wrong. No. But you're actually <laughs> showing people in your own journey the benefits of liberating yourself and the reality of the grace that follows behind all of that, that there really is, in fact, nothing to fear, um, which is so helpful. Um, you talked about in one chapter about embracing curiosity, um, and then the subtitle is Wonder as an Act of Justice. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how curiosity can be cultivated. You say, we actively choose to move through our days with a sense of wonder. This is a radical act of justice-seeking, not merely an indulgent source of entertainment. We can evoke curiosity in others by asking questions and modeling our own ability and desire to know more about them, their lives, and their view of the world. Our words and our posture can move communities from knowing to learning. As we see one another with greater compassion and wonder and as we break down stereotypes and assumptions, and it reminded me, one of my good friends has long said, when someone behaves or acts in a way that bothers you, don't ask what's wrong with you, rather ask what happened to you. Mm -hmm. And this is the sort of compassion you're inviting us into in this chapter. And I'm wondering, in, in what ways have you seen this work? It's one of your more, I would say, practical chapters. And mm -hmm. so what are ways that we can even begin practicing this kind of compassionate curiosity and the sense of wonder? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that I found really interesting when like researching this and playing with the concepts um, is our notions about curiosity and wonder and how uh, ingrained it is in like the curiosity killed the cat phrase <laughs> and mm -hmm. all these different phrases that teach us as children not to be curious and not to wonder and, and how much in our religious frameworks value knowing over mm. wondering and this like firm line of knowing has been promoted as a higher value than not knowing and wondering. And so a piece of that is like challenging that. Um, why do we 
feel like we have to know things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What is that? And why, how have we been pushed away from curiosity and wonder? And then the other piece that was really interesting is the the brain science around curiosity. There's actually research that's been done that curiosity actually physiologically, chemically changes our brains. And how, you know, we're, we're so locked in these political positions right now that everything we see just confirms what we know, right? That we, we not only yeah. sur- surround ourselves with things that confirm what we know, but we can look at the exact same thing and it will confirm what I know and it may confirm what you know, which is the exact opposite. So um, the studies are that when you approach questions or when you prime people even to open up your brain uh, with curiosity that people are more likely to look at situations in a more nuanced way Hmm. and less likely to fall right into political camps. Hmm. And research is being done around this, around climate change, for example, and it's really fascinating um, stuff. So, you know, that's where that, that practical piece of how I think, you know, Sometimes we're being trained to do something even when we don't know it. And obviously as kids, we were a lot of people were trained not to be curious, not to go over that ledge, not to touch that, not to, you know, and a lot of us in the, this hippie generation have been like, ooh, play with it, feel it, experience it. So <laughs> we, we've, we've pushed to the other side. But um, anyway, we have to train ourselves to be curious and look up from our phone, look up from our screen and look at a tree and, and really look at it and wonder, you know, how does the bark grow like that? Mm. I wonder why this leaf is shaped like this and just those simple practical ways. And we can even do it people watching, you know, huh? I wonder I get fascinated by, it's interesting, like why people choose the clothes that they do or the shoes that they do, or just picking little moments to intentionally train our brains to be curious and to wonder. And, and when we do that, then we will see that when we move into other spaces, uh, with someone who, uh, we have a, a, a neighborhood conflict happening and I won't get into it. It's very interesting, but, um, (laughs) one of my neighbors has some struggles and I was talking to her over the weekend and it would be easy for me to make some quick judgments. And I had to do my own work in that moment and say, I wonder what it's like for her right now. I Mm. wonder what she has been going through. And then I can engage in that conversation and stay a little longer. If I went right to my initial thoughts, I wouldn't have stayed. Yes. You, you asked a question there that you, you posed a question that you didn't answer. And so I'm going to ask Uh-oh. it again, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You said, why do we feel like we have to know things? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Knowledge is power. Ah, there it is. Um, By the way, you love the fact that I just have to know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I might ask me tomorrow. I might think something else. Um, but I, I do think that we have been taught, um, and that's part of white culture, 
that's part of white European culture. That's part of white Christian European culture. Um, if you were to ask someone who was native or um, from Ghana or like different cultures have different relationships with knowing. Mm. And part of white supremacy culture and whiteness and European Christian is knowing is power. Knowing is superior. Uh, this is so deeply ingrained and there are benefits to it. It's not like it's a, you know, I think so much of this is complicated. Um, I do want to know what causes cancer so that I can learn how to prevent it or cure it. Um, there are gifts to knowing and to seeking to know and to understand. It's when we take that to this extreme and we wield it over another person or, um, we it it separates us and divides us from another then that knowing has just been turned into a weapon rather than a gift yeah and when you talk about knowing you're talking about this mental ascent this learning the facts figure stats scientific <laughs> yeah. empiricism yeah yeah that's a good point um i think more than because there's a physical knowing too mm -hmm. i mean yeah. like my body knows something sometimes before my brain knows it uh yeah. so you know i don't want to um you know use knowing as a pejorative solely i want to <laughs> it's complicated yeah. it it's it is intermi intermixed and interconnected with power and how we use that knowing uh yeah. that really matters both physically and, and that I talk about that in the fear chapter. Like sometimes I know physically that I'm afraid, right? Our, our bodies are trained to keep us alive. And there's times I need to listen to that. And there's times when I need to say, but wait, is that a fear that is justified? Um, am I actually physically threatened right now? Or am I in a situation that's uncomfortable and I need to push myself out of my comfort zone? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when you were talking about knowing the thought that or the uh, what popped in my head is the Apostle Paul when he says knowledge puffs up but love builds up, mm. and just that. Uh, yeah, I'm at my worst when I am in a conversation and I resort to facts and figures and technicalities and parsing <laughs> words. I'm not. I'm going to be honest. I'm not bad at it. I'm. I'm decent. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably why I'm at my worst when I rely on that knowledge versus the kind of curiosity and wonder um, that you're talking about. And it's interesting, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who's one of the great thinkers, a Jewish theologian, said, never once in my life did I ask God for success or wisdom or power or fame. I asked for wonder and he mm. gave it to me. Ooh. And he has some of the most profound writing and insights on spirituality and the human condition because of exactly what you're talking about, the sense of wonder that he gave himself over to. Yeah. So that, that chapter was incredibly helpful. Um, you, you also talk about joy uh, and you describe it as an act of survival. Mm -hmm. And I've heard others speak about joy as an act of Christian defiance or a subversive act. Mm -hmm. And as you talk about it, and I think this is a, a really important thing for us to grasp, um, not just, not just all the time, but especially right now. But as you talk about it, it's not a denial of suffering or pain. It's not even that easy escapism. But really, it's kind of a, you speak about it as a way of moving in and through pain and suffering. So can you help us understand 
how joy can be for us a way of life no matter the circumstance? Yeah. I think that one of the places that I've seen this and learned it is with friends who have experienced real uh, turmoil and pain and suffering. Uh, And there's so many stories of communities who have found joy to be um, the key to be able to build resilience. And Zora Neale Hurston is one of my favorite authors, and she's kind of the the womanist movement, which is black women's um, theology. They really found, built a lot of their work on Zora Neale Hurston. And For Their Eyes Were Watching God is one of her books that you see the deepest pain and suffering of life And yet there is space for joy and connection. And that subversive piece of it is you can't take me down. (laughs) You know, it's kind of this like middle finger to suffering. (laughs) 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 Like like we will overcome. Uh, You can beat us down, but you can't kill us. And uh, that, that bee seeds, um, that you can bury us, but you didn't know that we're a seed type of thinking. Um, And I think sometimes personally, as someone who has not experienced uh, the kind of suffering that I was just talking about growing up in middle-class white community, um, similarly, but different, I'm comparing, but please don't hear me like comparing, comparing. Uh, we are trapped in some really painful realities in white Christian America. And they include busyness and achieving and uh, pressure and all of these, this dehumanization that has happened uh, in white communities that has led to depression and suicide and gun violence and numbing ourselves with drugs or video games or sex addiction or whatever we're numbing ourselves with. And, and I believe that this is a piece of what we have to see and address if we are to move to collective liberation, because this attitude of more, 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 more is suffering Mm. and it's a disease. And when we can find joy, not in a new yacht, (laughs) because you know what? I think most people would say that that might bring a moment of joy, but it doesn't bring deep joy, long-term joy. Deep long-term joy comes from human connection. It comes from the soul. It comes from dancing and music and love and, and being together. And this is what builds resilience and pushes us and challenges those, that constant desire for more, more knowledge, more power, more money. Um, or on the flip side, challenges those who have been beat down and oppressed by the desires and oppression of another by saying, you can beat me down, but you can't take me. Yeah. And it's interesting. The people that seem to speak the most profoundly about joy are often those who've suffered intensely. Yeah. 
I'm thinking of like Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Yes. Who anyone who's been around him always says he has a smirk and a twinkle in his eye. Uh, I, um, him and the Dalai Lama wrote the book, The Book of Joy, and they talk uh-huh. about how they would like tickle each other. That <laughs> <laughs> this was like their greeting. Like it wasn't a... <laughs> It wasn't this real sacred moment. It was this joy, profound joy-filled moment. Uh, and, uh, um, an archbishop who endured the atrocities of apartheid and a Buddhist, simple Buddhist monk, as the Dalai Lama described himself, who's been exiled from his country and is still wanted dead by the Chinese government. And they have tons and tons of joy. Yeah. There's like this resilience that comes out of it. Yeah. It's just a, just a reservoir, huh? <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm going to, I like that. It's a middle finger to suffering. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the book you mentioned? I want to, I want to make sure our readers hear that or listeners hear that it's for their eyes were on God. Their eyes were watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And she was one of the first black women authors uh, writing in, I guess the early 1900s. I could be wrong. Check that. I, unlike you, don't has have a reservoir of facts that I remember. And so then I'm always talking and going, oh, I can't remember this. I can't remember that fact. I can't remember the statistic. I can't remember this name. Uh, <laughs> but I can wonder about all those things really well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and what you just did in a very kind way is pointed out, I have a, I, there's some knowledge, which we've already covered, is not the best thing all the yeah. time. <laughs> You get to ask yourself questions about what you may or may not think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about this. You talk in the book, throughout the book, about relationships. You even begin um, talking about the 2016 ele- uh, election, and I've heard you share just about the relationships that, that you have across real difference. And I know for many listening, I know for me, um, we often experience tension with regard to these relationships. And so I'm wondering what insights or advice are you, are you willing to offer those of us who live in these sorts of relationships where there is really pronounced disagreement about important and substantive issues? Uh, my advice is this is the hardest of all of these issues to me. Um, because it's so much more complicated when we have a deep personal or family or love relationship with someone who we just see the world radically differently. And I think one piece of advice is give up on trying to convince the other person to see the world like you do. Accept reality as it is and love each other. Like start in the small things and I don't know. I, I can't imagine any of my family will wind up listening, but um, <laughs> just because they're in different worlds. Um, but my my parents read my book a couple months ago and didn't talk to me for a month. And oh and my. my parents love me. I love my parents. I thought that we could handle this. Um, I really hope that my in-laws don't read my book. Um, and part of that is because I love each of them. I have not cut off relationships. There's no abuse in our relationships between us. There's no, um, you know, we have, we have boundaries on what we talk about and where we'll go and where we won't go. And it's always difficult. 
and I feel heartbroken about it. Um, this goes back to a bit of the, the heartbrokenness from the beginning of our conversation. I feel deep heartbreak that our political environment and um, it's not just our political environment. It's a willingness to see, to me, that there are policies that are dehumanizing and killing and hurting people. I feel heartbroken that my family doesn't see that, Hmm. that that's not the way they see Black Lives Matter, that that's not the way they see Donald Trump. And I can't convince them otherwise. Um, And so trying to convince them is not healthy for me or for them. So my posture is to live my life fully and to be me and to speak what I believe with love and compassion and authenticity and to love them too. And I'm not trying to convince them, but I'm not hiding who I am. Mm. And, and so it's striking that balance. I think that some people have to pretend or hide, um, and that wouldn't work for me. I can't not be, you know, speaking out on behalf of those who I see suffering. Hmm. At the same time, belittling my family because they don't also see that doesn't really help either. (laughs) Turns out. I learned from experience. (laughs) It it just so happens. (laughs) You you use the word uh, boundaries in your response. And I know you talk about that a little bit in the book too. What are, what are some healthy boundaries when it comes to these relationships? You said there's places you, you won't go. What are, what are some of the things, some of the boundaries you've, uh, you've created and then how do you maintain those? Cause I think that's one of the hardest things in the heat of the moment we can find ourselves even breaking agreements that we've made, um, not with the other, but even agreements we've made with ourselves of, I'm not going to do that. And all of a sudden we do. Yeah. You know, I just thought of, um, you've got kids who are similar age. Do you remember, did you ever do the love and logic, um, parenting? Did you ever read the love and logic parenting book? No, but I'm, I'm aware of it. Yeah. So there's a line that they use, um, called, I love you too much to argue. And Hmm. that line just came to me when you were saying that, um, and this isn't where I go in the book, but we have, when, when my husband and I are around family members who we know that there's a high likelihood that a hot topic could come up or they could like, there's some egging that happens. And I know that I might get egged. Like there's some prodding trying to get me into an argument. Preparing before you go into those situations is is a practical way to for me to be sure, okay, I know that I might get fired up in this space. Um, I have had these conversations enough to know the physical feeling I feel when I'm going to get angry and frustrated and then blood won't be going to my brain. And so whatever I say is not actually going to be cohesive or helpful. Um, so that, that self-awareness and preparing in advance of, uh, I love you too much to argue. Another line I really like is that's just not my experience. It's, (laughs) it's hard to argue other people's experiences. Um, 
for example, someone I care about very much thinks that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. So we've had lengthy conversations about this. And I mean, the only thing I can go back to is that's not my experience. And my experience is X, Y, Z. And, and then being able to say, I don't, you know, having some lines of, I don't see that this conversation is going to go anywhere helpful. And I, I really love you and value our relationship. So if you want to talk about this, I'm happy to, but if it's going to be hurtful, then I think it might be best that we not talk about it. Um, and you know, a lot of times right now we're talking about, okay, you have to lean in, you have to talk about these things. Um, and there are times when, yes, that's true, but there are other times when people just, their brain is not in a space to be able to have a conversation where they're receptive to hearing another person. And so being aware enough to know when is the right time to engage in a difficult conversation and when it's just not, and don't waste your time and energy or make it worse when it's not yeah. the right time. Um, and then I, I do talk about that, that boundary of the sephirot, that's the, the right hand of God and the left hand of God. Um, the chesed is the left hand of God and the gevorah is the right hand of God. And I might've said those wrong, but that, that's my, what I, how I think they're said. Um, You're, so you have more education than I do, so I'm just going to rely <laughs> on your pronunciation. <laughs> um, but the gevorah is the, the right, the law. And that boundary and God has law and God has boundary and we all have to have law. We have to have structure. Um, and the chesed is this love and this overflowing openness, unconditional love. And God has that and we need that. And where we live is in this messy space between those two. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I think the 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 phrase that came to mind when you talked about I've had a different experience or I've experienced that differently, Brian McLaren said his response is, I think we see that differently. Mm-hmm. And I've stolen that one. And that is, that's an opening line of many emails I've sent to people. <laughs> I think we see this differently. And it's, it's a way good. of naming it and recognizing there, like to your point, there are some people, well, maybe we should think about it this way. How many times do we want to enter, enter into a conversation knowing the person on the other end is trying to change our mind? Yeah. Probably Never. not often. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's the way that you talk about the, the relational piece throughout the book is incredibly, is incredibly helpful. And my hope for those of you who are listening is I know just through correspondence and emails with many of you that you find yourself in this this newer space, this more expansive space, and having these conversations with family members, with friends, uh, former pastors becomes really difficult. And so I, I'm so thankful Amanda was on uh, or has been on with us today because I think what she writes is helpful for us to consider. And for those of you wondering, there's so many practical applications that she introduces in the book that would be incredibly helpful uh, for all of us to read, to consider, and even begin to put into practice so that we can find connection across real difference. So Amanda, where can our listeners find Holy Chaos? They can find it at chalicepress.com uh, or on Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. Uh, they can go to Holy Chaos. 
interfaithalliance.org. And they can also check out the Interfaith Alliance or interfaithalliance.co.org for our organization. And there's links there to the book and to the work that you and I are engaged in together. Yes. Great. And the uh, hard or the print copy drops July 14. It was delayed because yes. of COVID. Is that correct? But That's it's already correct. available on ebook. It's available on ebook. And if you order through Chalice, rumor is that some people are getting it already. Oh. Uh, I think the print houses are a little out of whack after COVID. Uh, but I think through Amazon, they are closer to July 14th. It's a okay. little unknown. It was supposed to be May 20th. So we're. Uh, you know, it's a long delayed launch. A little intrigue around the release. Of the yeah, book. yeah. Well, it's really building up anticipation. It. What's that? <laughs> building up anticipation. Yeah. Well, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's incredibly helpful and it's written from a very, uh, very tender and compassionate place. So I really appreciated the way that you invited all of us to consider how we can make these connections. So thank you, my friend, for being here on the Changing Faith podcast and the tireless work that you do here in the city of Denver. Um, I've witnessed it firsthand, and I can say as a faith leader, we are blessed to have you serve the way you do. So thank you. Thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. And that is it for today. Uh, please check out the notes for this episode. There you're going to find links for where you can learn more about Amanda and her work with the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. And you can find a link to her book titled Holy Chaos. And my hope is that you will take the time to read it I would even say maybe read it with somebody, uh, someone with whom you disagree, and that you would put into practice what is there, not so we can become more comfortable, rather so that we might find ourselves living together in a more just and equitable and loving world. So we will be back in a couple of weeks for the last episode of season three before the summer break. And so until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.